If you would please take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Exodus, chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, you can see in the bulletin we're going to be reading a fairly lengthy portion of the scriptures today as we are starting this week into the plague stories. And the goal today is to cover the first three of the plagues. And there's a reason for that that I wanted to explain just briefly before reading the the text as I was preparing to get into this portion of Exodus and knowing that this section of ten plagues was coming. I had a lot of, not necessarily sleepless nights, but a lot of time wondering how to best approach a section like this. There are some people who simply preach ten sermons, one covering each plague. And then there are others who will preach one sermon to cover all ten plagues in one fell swoop. Both of those sounded a little extreme to me. I wanted a little bit more time with this passage than just one sermon would give us. But at the same time, the themes are a little repetitive, from plague to plague, so I didn't necessarily want ten sermons. But if you read just straight through all ten, actually, I should say the first nine, right? The tenth plague, the the Passover, the death of the firstborn, is really on its own. It's kind of set off. It has about a chapter and a half of introduction for it, so we know it's its own thing. But even the first nine plagues, if we read them, uh, what stands out is there's a pattern in the way that they're presented. And they break down very naturally into three sets of three plagues. Uh, In each of those, the first one, so plagues one, four, and seven, all are introduced by telling us that Moses went down to meet Pharaoh. The second plague in each set is introduced by telling us that Moses went in to go see Pharaoh, presumably in his throne room. And the third plague in each set is not introduced. There is no confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses just brings the plague. And so there's a repeating pattern in the way each one is introduced. Uh, Also, in the first set of three, each plague is uh, brought about by Aaron using the staff of God that he is holding. The middle three plagues are all brought about by God directly. And the last three plagues are all brought about by Moses using the staff. I think there's an exception or two in there, but we see a general pattern in the way that these plagues are presented. So it seemed fairly obvious on study to say, okay, the writer of these stories has broken them down for us already, and he's put them in little groups. So we're going to approach them that way by taking three plagues today and three next week and three the following week, which should give us an opportunity to uh, not dwell on them too long, but at the same time to hear all that the Lord would have to teach us from these very important stories in the book of Exodus. So that said, I'm going to read from chapter 7, verse 14, through the end of chapter 8, verse uh, 19. So this is a lengthy passage, but please let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word, and would you join me in standing today as we hear it? Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. 
Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with the staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me, from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Heavenly Father, we're 
We're thankful to read your word and to, to read of your mighty acts and the salvation of your people. And so we pray now that the power of your spirit will open the eyes of our hearts to hear, to read, and to understand, and that you might bless the teaching of your word this day. Lord, that you would draw us to Christ, exalt his glorious name, and let us see him as our only hope in life and in death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Be forever grateful for lasagna because haggis looks definitely disgusting. That's a mnemonic that can help you remember the order of the ten plagues. Like E-G-B-D-F, the scales. Every good boy deserves fudge. Well, to remember the order of the plagues, which are B-F-G-F-L-H-B-H-L-D-D, I can't even say the letters, just remember. Be forever grateful for lasagna, because haggis looks definitely disgusting. You can, if that's your only takeaway from the sermon today, I won't blame you, but, but it's helpful. You can remember the order. I'll let you work out the letters on your own. But it's interesting, isn't it, as we come to this section of Scripture, it's, it's sort of unlike almost anything else that we read in the Scripture. I think for those of us who have grown up in the church, who maybe grew up in Sunday school and learned about these plagues on a flannel graph long, long ago, we read them and it, it almost, you know, we know exactly what's coming. We know exactly what the Lord is going to do and we know exactly what Pharaoh is going to do and, and we can kind of chuckle at the idea of frogs in their beds and in their ovens. And it's terrible, but we know exactly how it goes. But I was struck this week for, for those who might not be familiar with these stories, how odd this must be. And not only odd, but how troubling. For someone who perhaps is just learning of the faith and, and has learned something of who the Lord is and has heard us talk so much about the love and the grace and the mercy of God, our, our wonderful God who, who loves uh, sinners, who teaches them, instructs them in his way, then to come to a passage like this and to see this other side, that God is not only a God of, of love and mercy, but these are stories piled on stories, nine, ten plagues in a row where the Lord truly comes against his enemies in wrath and in judgment. And, and to read these from that perspective, it, it almost seems troubling doesn't it? Because these are not necessarily the, the character traits of God that, that go over the best in our world today, right? The, there's some PR issues that we have in a text like this where, where God doesn't seem like the kind of God that, that we want because he, he, he's wrathful and he comes against his enemies in power. And, and it should be a little bit unsettling to us. And, and I think that's okay if it feels unsettling. In fact, it might be good not necessarily to be unsettled by the fact that God is a God who has wrath, has righteous judgment. That in itself is one of God's perfections for which he should be worshipped. But to see, to see him bringing his wrath against actual people, to see the Lord bringing suffering on actual people because of their sin is troubling. Just as humans, it's troubling to, to see that happen. And so I think any time we come to a passage that, that strikes us as troubling and we don't quite know what to do with it at first, it's always good, I think, to go back to, 
square one. Go back to first principles of any Bible study and to say, let's just look big picture at a passage like this and ask maybe two basic questions. What does a passage like this teach us about God who loves and redeems his people? And what does a passage like this teach us about ourselves who need redemption by the Lord? And, and what I want to focus on as we look at these first three plagues is really that first question. What does this teach us about God? In a sense, if we remember Pharaoh's question, right, from chapter 5, where Moses and Aaron approached him for the first time to say, let my people go. You remember his question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? What a great question, Pharaoh. The Lord is all too happy to answer that question, and the plagues are part of God's answer to that question. This is one of the places I think we can see that a text like this really has a lot to say to us, even today. I think it's easy to read these stories and to think this is just quintessential Old Testament, right? This is stories of of large-scale destruction, of God coming in judgment. It it must have been bloody. The whole river was turned into blood. It's, It's classic Old Testament text. And yet in other ways, I think, if if we begin to see it, it's also very modern. Because it's presenting us with the questions about God that people are asking today. Who is the Lord? Who is God that we should obey him? And so, what we learn about God in this passage is at the foremost of what I want us to see. In fact, uh, God tells us elsewhere, he tells us, Paul tells us in Romans, Right? We read these passages a couple weeks ago where, where Paul says one of the primary purposes that God had throughout the plague stories was making his power and his glory known. That's one of the things he wanted to do. That was his desire, right? Romans 9, 17, he writes, For this purpose I raised you up, he's talking about Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God tells us one of his purposes in this was that God's name might be made known throughout all the earth through his power being seen, that he could display it. Again, Romans 9.22, Paul asks, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his, known, and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? He says, here again is God's purpose in this. It's making a display of his glory for all the earth to see, both a display of his wrath towards those who are his enemies, but at the very same time, he says, he's also trying to make known the riches of his glory in his mercy, for the vessels of his mercy. In other words, one of his purposes is that the people of God themselves, those who uh, are reconciled to God, those who the Lord loves, might read a passage like this and, and worship and be in awe, both from seeing his wrath being proclaimed, but also seeing the mercy being proclaimed. God, in the plagues, has a purpose to make his glory known. And that's what I want us to see is the glory of God being made known in these chapters of Exodus. And so, as we read the plagues, I mean, to just read them one after the other, it's, 
no, it feels a little comedic at times that he just hits them with everything in his arsenal. But, but as we look at them, I want us to see this. There is nothing random about the plagues God brings against Egypt. As odd as they may seem at times, there's nothing random. They're not just random acts of God's wrath, as though he's just some capricious kid having a temper tantrum in heaven and saying, well, try frogs. How do you like frogs in your bed? God is actually working with a plan, and he actually has a purpose. And, and we're going to see that these are plagues that are addressed specifically to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And in a way, God is contextualizing himself to them. He's speaking to them in a way that they will understand. And he's bringing plagues on them that mean something to them. Because here's what we know. The Egyptians, they were a very religious people. They didn't just worship one god. They worshiped many gods. And by many, some Egyptologists are estimating that there were upwards of 1,400 gods. And he says that's a pretty conservative estimate for how many gods the Egyptians worshipped. Each of these gods that they worshipped had a specific role or performed a specific function or in some cases was limited to a particular trade, like a certain craftsman might have their god that they worship and another would worship another god of their trade. And what we see then as we read the plagues is that God is demonstrating his power over nature, demonstrating that the Egyptian gods of nature are really no gods at all. Right? They don't have any power over nature, over the Nile, over the animals, over the insects. It's God himself, the one true God, who has all power over nature. God is exposing the other gods. Right? As we've said, this is not just a confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, two guys. This is a confrontation of the one true God versus the idols of the Egyptians. Or we could even say God versus Satan. God is making his power and his glory known in all the earth, and he is exposing the weakness of the idols of the nations. He's exposing them for what they are, that they make false claims and they cannot follow through. Now, here's what we see, there, that with some of these plagues, it's easy to see that each plague is very specifically against the particular god of the Egyptians. Now, with some of the plagues, it's hard. It, there are so many gods of the, the Egyptians that it's hard to pick sometimes. We don't know exactly which one. When we look at the Nile, we know how important the Nile is in Egyptian life and in Egyptian religion. The Nile was, for Egypt, literally the source of life in that every year they depended on the flooding of the Nile, right? It, it brought all the, the silt and the fertile soil down from upriver, and it, as it flooded, it would spread that over the land, and that's what kept the land of Egypt fertile for their crops. And so they recognized that it was a source of life. And they went a step further and they idolized it as their source of life and worshipped it as such. Uh, they religiously saw that the Nile was even considered to be divine. Uh, they considered, among other things, that the flooding of the river each year was from the tears of Isis weeping over Osiris. Right? They had these legends of the gods and, and it was their gods then who were producing the flooding. They sang their praises to the Nile. Uh, as best as we know, Pharaoh did not bathe in the Nile. So when we read in this first plague that Moses goes and he meets Pharaoh in the morning as he's going down to the Nile, the commentators think he's not going down there to take a bath. He's going down there to worship. And Moses is going to go and he's going to meet, them, meet him there at the Nile where Pharaoh is going to worship 
And that's where he's going to introduce this play. There's nothing random about God's choice of starting with the Nile River. That was one of the most divine aspects of Egyptian religion. Even as we get to the second one, frogs. We, we know that frogs were associated with at least two of the Egyptian gods, Hopi and Hecht. I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce those, but, but Hecht was the goddess of fertility and was pictured commonly as a frog and was used as a good luck charm to increase fertility. And so it could be then that because one of Pharaoh's first evil actions was to attempt to kill all the baby Israelite boys, that it would be very particular then. This is not a random act on God's part, but he is attacking their gods and goddesses of fertility as well. And we could go on through, through all the plagues. Some are harder to pinpoint than others because there are so many options. But we see that these are not random acts of, of childlike temper tantrum wrath, but that God has a purpose. And that no doubt to the Egyptians who were alive in those days, they communicated their purpose very clearly. They knew exactly what was going on. That it was the God of the Israelites who was going to war against their God. And every sign pointed to the fact that the God of the Israelites was winning big time. He was coming against them. There was nothing random about God hitting the Nile first. It was a symbolic place for the Egyptians. It's just like, well, it's like September 11th. I, I mentioned that analogy a couple weeks ago, so I, I won't use it again for a while. But we know, in thinking about that day, there was nothing random about the targets that were chosen, was there? They were symbols, symbols of American pride and American power. And so it, it meant something to hit those things. It's a message. It's the same with God choosing to hit the Nile first. There's nothing random about that. God is sending a message to Pharaoh and to all the Egyptians. Just like it says, look at verse 17 of chapter 7. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. By this you shall know, and it's not just because he's done this great you know, trick of turning water into blood. The Egyptians do the same thing. And we said there's some irony in there because they're just making things worse. They're bringing plagues on themselves. They're not doing any good for themselves. But it's not just the trick itself. It's that God is setting himself up against the false gods of the Egyptians. And he's attacking them. And he says, by this you will know that I am the Lord. Not the false idols, but I am the Lord. There's a theology lesson in this. There's a theology lesson in all of the plagues that the people needed to learn because this is what the Egyptians did, and I don't think it's that uncommon today, is they made a common mistake. They saw a good thing happen, and they gave credit to a false god for it. They would see a good thing happen. Ah, the Nile has flooded. It's increased the fertility of the land so that there will be crops in abundance this year and the people will eat and will have some for next year. They recognized a good thing when they saw it, but their problem was they did not give glory to God who supplied them with every good gift that came down from above. What they do instead, they thanked and praised and ascribed glory to false gods. Right? They... They enjoyed a warm afternoon. That's a wonderful example of common grace of the Lord blessing people made in his image. And yet what did they do? They gave praise to the sun god who had risen in glory that morning and provided warmth and, and energy and light. They got a promotion at work 
They gave glory to the God of their profession rather than giving thanks to God. And so what they need is a theology lesson. They need to learn that the Lord, Yahweh, is the only true God. Every good gift comes from him, that he is sovereign over all things, that he rules over every aspect of nature, that he rules over every profession and every craftsman, that he rules over nations and kings and pharaohs, and that there is no God like the Lord. And I say that's common today because don't we do the same thing? Aren't we guilty of the same thing of receiving good gifts in life? Good things happen to us. And we give thanks to the wrong place rather than thanking God and giving glory to Him. We give glory to ourselves. We think that our own hands have produced what we have. Our own cleverness, our own wisdom, our own training. And so we exalt ourselves, we exalt our teachers, we exalt our learning rather than giving thanks to God. You see, he's teaching them a theology lesson here, and it's not just book learning anymore. Right? It's not enough for the Egyptians to, to learn from the mouth of Moses what it means that God is sovereign. God wants them to feel what it means that he is sovereign. Not just to know the definitions, not just to know the catechism answers, but, but to experience what it means that God is sovereign. To feel it in the depths of their beings that, that this God whom they are dealing with now has all authority over heaven and earth. That he can move nature at his will for good or for ill. To bless his people, to judge his enemies. They need to feel what God is doing. Right? There's a, there's a difference between knowing things academically and feeling the truth of it. And, and that's what we need as well. It's not just to know about God's sovereignty, but to begin to feel what it means that our God reigns. That all the days of our lives are in his hand, for good and for ill, the good days, the bad days. To feel what it means that in the midst of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, to know that he leads us and his staff comforts us and guides us. To know what it means that we are worth more than than many sparrows. And if God takes care of the birds of the field, how much more does he care for his children? Those are truths we can't just read the verses and commit them to memory until, until we've felt what they mean and then they mean something to us. I think that's the same to know what it is that God is holy, to know what it is that our sin is an offense against God. Right? You know the holiness of God differently after you've met him at the burning bush like Moses did after you were told to take off your shoes and not to come any closer because the ground on which he was standing was holy ground. I think Pharaoh learned the, the truth of God's holiness the hard way through plagues and felt what it was to deal with a God who is holy. Israel would learn it and they would feel it in fear and trembling at the foot of Mount Sinai when they pleaded with Moses, Moses, you go up the mountain for us. We don't want to get any closer to it. It's a fearful sight to be in the presence of a holy God. And so, hopefully for us, we'll learn it through the Spirit of God himself, applying the Word of God to our hearts. And experiencing the, the Word of God, not just as ancient history, but as the living and active Word of God that speaks to us and teaches us. And to know his mercy, not, not theoretically, but to actually feel what it is that the Lord is good to those he loves. And to see that even in the plague narratives. Right? We, 
we have to look because we don't see the mercy at first in the plague narratives, but, but put yourself in the shoes of Israel. Imagine you're the people of God and you come out of the plagues unscathed, having just witnessed your next-door neighbors being crushed, literally crushed beyond recognition, but knowing that, that God loves his people and he gave them a means of escape. He provided for them. They'll have a whole new sense now of what it means to know the mercy of the Lord. See, what we see in the plagues is they are displaying and putting on display for all the world to see the character of God. Entire range of who he is, his holiness, his righteousness, his wrath against sin, his judgment on those who sin. But we'll see his mercy as well. I want you to to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15 for a moment. Exodus chapter 15 for a moment, because as much as it might be the case that that wrath and judgment are not the popular character traits of God today, uh, we feel a little uneasy even bringing those up and having to deal with them. Here's what Israel felt about these character traits. They just witnessed the plagues firsthand. They were there. And what what does it make them feel? How are they dealing with and processing this? after going through all of it and seeing an entire army of Egypt drowned in the Red Sea as the judgment of God. Well, we need to think on on Exodus 15, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Here's here's Israel on the far side of the Red Sea, having just witnessed the wrath of God, and they're not embarrassed by it. They're not unsure what to do with it, hanging their heads a little bit. They're worshiping with great joy. Because the Lord is a man of war, and he has gone to fight on their behalf. And the Lord has won their salvation. And they stand on that shore as a free people, knowing the enemy has been forever defeated. And they sing, and they praise, and they worship, and they see God in his perfections, and they have just witnessed his great acts, and they say, the Lord is a man of war. Praise his holy name. Because God wins his victory over his enemies and our enemies through his judgment on them. Because he comes against his and our enemies in his wrath and in his judgment, therefore, his people are free. We're free because he comes in wrath and, here's the key, at the very time he's coming in wrath, he shelters his people from that wrath. We'll we'll read it in a few weeks, I suppose, in the story of the Passover that we know that that the destroying angel is going to come and execute his wrath against Egypt, but God's people will be sheltered literally by the blood of a lamb. They will be instructed, take the lamb, slaughter it, use the blood, paint it on the doorpost, and when the angel sees that, you'll be protected. There will be a seal over each of your houses that you will receive mercy and not the judgment of God. Which tells us that that it is the wrath of God combined with the mercy of God that executes our salvation. 
right? We wouldn't know what his mercy was if not for his wrath. What would mercy be if there was no wrath to be sheltered from? But we experience his mercy because we know that he is a God who is holy and who is righteous and does not abide sin. He comes in wrath against sin. We're sheltered from it in mercy because our sins were placed on Christ. And therefore, when God poured out his wrath on sin, he did not pour it out on his people. He poured it out on his son. And Jesus took all the wrath of God, and that is the means by which he saves his people. Right? And so, so to see the wrath of God is not to see the, the ugly side of God or one of his less tolerable attributes. It's to see one of his perfections for which we should worship him. And at the same time, to see that is to begin to understand what mercy is. To put our shoes, ourselves in the shoes of the Egyptians and to say, truly, there before the grace of God go, go ourselves. That's what we all deserve for our sin. We're no better than them. And yet to recognize that God in his mercy protects his people. That he looks on each one of us and, and he gives us the instructions beforehand to shelter ourselves under the blood of Christ, to be protected. And if we are protected by the blood of Christ, then his wrath will not touch us. But you'll see that, that we are sealed with it. We're protected by it. We, we don't know the mercy of God until we understand the wrath of God. And in the plagues, we see introduction to wrath 101. What does it look like when God comes against people? How does he judge sin? This is just a little preview, but it is a preview, and it's meant to show us something, that God is a God who judges sin. Therefore, heed the instructions, shelter under the blood, and know what it is to receive mercy. That is the mercy of God. So we see something of the character of God, and there's two responses again, to it that we see in the text. There's Pharaoh chafes against it. In his pride, he chafes against it. He cannot abide it, and so he hardens his heart. And then there's the Israelites who worship. There's the people of God who see these things, and they're, they're rejoicing, and they're glad, and they praise the Lord for all that he has done in making his glory known. In 1518, the Lord will reign forever and ever. They sing their praise and worship to the God of their salvation. And so we see God's character and what we ought to do then is to, is to worship and to praise him for all that he has done for us. Now, I want to I conclude with two questions from the text. Look at chapter 7, verse 23. Chapter 7, verse 23. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. So here's the question. Do you take the word of the Lord to heart? Do you take it to heart? Will you be the man that James talks about who, who looks in the mirror, goes away, and forgets what he looks like? Or will you be the man who, who reads it and simply gains academic knowledge of, of history and what God has done? Or will we take it to heart? Will we see the acts of God? Will we humble ourselves and bow in worship to the Lord of our salvation. There's a purpose in God's mercy, and the purpose 
is that having received his mercy, we might grow in grace, we might grow in humility, we might grow in love for him, we might soften our hearts and turning to him in faith. Will we take the word of the Lord to heart? And here's the second question. And this comes from the second plague and the frogs, chapter 8, verse 15. If you remember earlier in the chapter, Pharaoh calls to Moses and he relents. The frogs are too much. The blood he could take, he probably had some bottled water. The frogs, they get him. They're in his bed. They're in the kneading bowls. They're in the food. They're on the people. Did you catch that? There are frogs on the people. And he relents until the frogs die. When Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen. And so I think the question for us becomes, will we listen to the Lord even if there's no frogs in your bed? Will you still listen to the Lord even if there's no frogs in your bed today? When there were frogs in the bed, Pharaoh was all ears. Lord, you speak, I listen. You command, I do. Of course he listened to the Lord then. Of course he was pleading with the Lord then. Of course he had his daily devotions that day and, and got down on his knees in prayer. But when the frogs died, so did his spirit. So did his heart. When he saw there was a respite, he forgot all about the Lord. When times were easy, he didn't need the Lord. He hardened his heart. He turned back to his own way. He built himself up in his Sometimes we need some frogs in our bed. I think that's one of the lessons. And sometimes, not here, sometimes God gives us frogs as a mercy to bring us back to himself. Here it's judgment. But the lesson is the same. In the times of suffering and in the times of trial, it's easy to go to the Lord. We feel our dependence, and that's a good thing. Sometimes in times of ease and in times of prosperity, we don't feel it. Charles Spurgeon once said, all the grace that he had received in his good times, he could put on a penny. But the grace he had received during his trials was altogether uncalculable. And so I want you to know, if you're walking through a trial and a difficulty, even the valley of the shadow of death, take heart. The Lord is good to his people. It might be a way that the Lord is calling you to cry out to him, to humble yourself, to take joy in his mercy, to plead with him, to move your heart towards him rather than away from him. And if you're not in a time of trial, if these are the times of ease, do the same thing. Don't wait, but go to the Lord. Renew the devotion of your heart. Renew the first love that you knew at one time. Go to the Lord, plead with him, Renew your acquaintance, for he is a glorious, righteous, merciful God who loves to hear from his people. Let's pray together. Father, 